no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion In this melted pot we live in Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best The saga continues, continues The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. It is Wednesday, November 17th. And I want to start off with a little bit of an update on a friend of the show, uh, now a friend of mine. And I know a lot of you have gotten a lot of, um, been following what's been going on with the Stephen Donzinger case. Stephen Donzinger is, of course, the human rights attorney who represented uh, indigenous people in Ecuador. He had been spending years and years in Ecuador um, working with them as an attorney. And he fought Chevron and he won a case uh, effectively. And Chevron has not paid their fines, uh, fines which are well below the fines that BP had to pay when they had that oil spill. They're not only not paying the fines, but they continue to wreak havoc. Stephen, unlike so many indigenous leaders who have actually been murdered in the global South for their work on climate justice and in protecting their communities, Stephen is a white man who is Ivy League educated and is a very successful lawyer. So they knew that they couldn't get away with that in the U.S. Of course not. It would, you know, the the, the press would, would it, it just, there's a different legal system here, as flawed as it is, which we'll talk about. It just wouldn't, they wouldn't get away with that. So what did they do? Chevron decided to work the legal system and file false RICO charges, racketeering uh, charges against Stephen Donziger, and they made sure that there was an, uh, there was a judge in place that had their interests. Literally, the judge has conflicts of interest and is working directly with Chevron. So Stephen went through a Kabuki theater trial uh, and was prosecuted, and he was convicted. And he is now sitting in a prison in Danbury, Connecticut for six months. This has never happened in the history of the United States. This is unprecedented. Not only did he win a case against Chevron, uh, but you've never seen an attorney convicted for anything like this in retaliation. You've never seen a judge with such egregious conflicts of interest, you know, try the case, uh, oversee the case and rule on the case. You've never seen an attorney convicted of a misdemeanor, put in jail for six months. This is after he has been under house arrest for two years, which was also unprecedented. So much so that the global community, the UN, uh, human rights attorneys, attorneys all over the world, activists, uh, NGOs have called this out. So Stephen is uh, in his second week in prison right now. And I wanted to give you an update because I spoke to one of his lawyers this morning. And I actually want to read you, if you're not already following Stephen's social media accounts, both on Twitter and Instagram, his lawyers are posting updates and his team are posting updates through the very limited correspondence he's able to give. It's very complicated how they they correspond. He only gets 15-minute phone calls. Uh, You know, and it's usually spent with his family, and he spends a couple of minutes with his lawyers. When they email, every single email is read through. So it takes hours of back and forth emails between his lawyers and himself uh, for these updates. 
And uh, it's very, very hard to get visitors to visit Stephen, so much so his family still hasn't visited him. So I'm going to give you an update from Stephen. Just passed my second week in prison after two, two years on house arrest, 164 days to go. Just completed one-twelfth of my se- sentence, and here is a little update. Conditions are challenging for everybody. There are people here with very long sentences, 30 years or more, including at least three lifers not eligible for parole, and very few with short sentences. The prison is over capacity. My last unit felt dangerous with one exit down a stairwell for 73 men. That leads to a locked door. If a fire were to break out, it would be horrific. I have since moved units. More on that later. The amount of food is meager. The Bureau of Prisons spends about $1.40 per person per meal. I've lost weight since I've been here. There are almost never fresh vegetables. Fresh fruit is scarce. Scarce. Portions are, are small, so people spend money to buy food in the commissary where prices are much higher than normal. You can buy food once per week. The prison makes money off of inmates who have limited resources. From phones, emails, employment, inmates work for a few cents per hour, and in most cases, conceivable uh, every conceivable task to keep the, pris- the prison running, including plumbing and electricity. And of course, they make money off the commissary. They even make you buy a toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, and a hat and gloves for the cold weather. Visits are discouraged just by virtue of the rules. To get on the visitor's list, they run a background check to make sure the visitor does not have a criminal record. That can take weeks. One man has been here for three months and has not been able to get his family on the list. I've yet to see my wife, son, and friends during the last two weeks. Unclear when that might even happen. I've had two attorney visits, which were fabulous, but also so without their issues, not without their issues, excuse me. All of this is to say it's really isolating. I'm not depressed. There's an incredible amount of humanity, caring, and reflection on the inside. Please keep sending letters and go to freedonzinger.com for the latest updates posted by my team. Matt Burton, a young lawyer who just passed the bar, is keeping things together with my wife, Laura, and many others when I'm on the inside. Love to all and onward. And I spoke to Matt this morning. Um, And so what we are going to do, we've made a commitment to their team, is to have folks from uh, Stephen's team uh, and, and advocates that have worked with him closely, we're going to make sure that they're they're continuing to come on the show and give us updates because it is by design, right? This has been a big campaign, uh, to a public awareness campaign about what Chevron has done and that they're not paying their fines. Let's not forget, this is about making sure that the people of Ecuador receive the, the, the money, essentially the reparations for what Chevron and previous oil companies have done in Ecuador. And they're refusing to spend that money to give that money back and they can afford it. We all know that. So what they're trying to do is not just punish Stephen, but distract away from that. And by putting Stephen in jail for six months and limiting his communication, they want to make sure that the press doesn't pay attention anymore. So we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this, this story keeps getting updated, that we send you updates, that this we're keeping this movement alive while Stephen is in prison. So uh, make sure to go check out his his uh, Instagram and his Twitter feed. I know they're doing regular up- updates, and uh, we're hoping to have members of his team on the show in coming weeks. So 
stay in touch and please send him letters too. He's really uh, very grateful for all that and that inf- information's all on his social media. All right. We have a wonderful show today. Uh, we are going to be talking about, oh wait, corruption. Is this something that happens in the U.S.? No, couldn't be. Uh, but it's not just about the U.S. It's how the West supports corruption beyond our legalized and often illegal corruption uh, through kleptocrats. We're going to be talking to Frank Vogel, who is the author of The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption Endangering Our Democracy. We will be right back after this short little break with Frank. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. Money and politics. Listen, when we started this show, we told you we were going to talk about how structures worked. How does our government work? How do parties work? How does money flow? Uh, this has definitely been part of my beat throughout my career. And anytime I have somebody on who is way, way, way smarter than me who can talk about the, the nitty gritty, I, I nerd out. I know you guys do too. Uh, Frank Vogel is the author of The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption Endangering Our Democracy. He is a former senior World Bank official and foreign business and economics correspondent for the Times of London. And he teaches a graduate course at Georgetown uh, University titled Corruption, Conflict, Resolution, and Security. Uh, And on top of all that, he's the chair of the board of directors of the Partnership for Transparency Fund. So welcome to the show, Frank Vogel. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I mean, this is, I mean, you have quite a, a career. And I love talking to people who have been on the inside and then come out to tell us what it's like. Because, you know, I think most Americans, most people have a suspicion, sometimes a paranoid suspicion of how government functions. You know, all like my grandfather used to say, uh, all politicians are crooks. And, uh, and you know, and part of that is because, you know, he escaped uh, Hoja. So in his mind, everybody was a crook. Um and, but I think there's a lot of Americans who, 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 who believe that and believe it in their gut. And, you know, obviously the Trump administration proved a lot of that or exposed a lot of that uh, to many Americans. Not all, <laughs> clearly. But here you are, you've written a book on, on the, the, the West's role in, in corruption around the globe. Um, but coming from a perspective of, you know, your experience at the World Bank uh, and, of course, covering covering finance. So how, I mean, I guess I don't even know where to start with this other than maybe how deep does this go? How, how much invested and organized is this? Well, I got into this anti-corruption work many, many years ago because I saw firsthand in many of the world's poorest countries, how absolutely hundreds of thousands, millions of people were trapped in terrible poverty because their governments stole the funds necessary for basic social services, for basic humanitarian services, and how these enormous numbers of very poor people were every day extorted by the police, they were extorted by health workers, and that's what got me into this. And so for years... um, Many, many people have been focusing on corruption in the developing countries and in the and in Central and Eastern Europe. And what they miss is the fact that so much of that corruption is due to complicity, hmm. not only by Western 
multinational companies, including the biggest banks, but also by our governments themselves. And so we need to look at this whole picture as a universal picture. It's all closely related. And what's so interesting about what you just said is that in opinion poll after opinion poll, here in the U.S., in Europe, but also in Brazil, also in uh, many parts of Africa, you find there is enormous distrust in government. Mm. In fact, trust levels in government could not be lower than they are today. And when you drill down, you find that many, many people have that very low trust in government because they see their government as corrupt. And when you drill down further, what are they really saying? They're saying that there's too much money in politics and that the most influential business classes are the ones who screw the system so that they benefit at the expense of others. And my book is about the financial sector primarily and how our biggest banks and law firms and real estate brokers and auction houses, these are the enablers, aid and abet foreign government corrupt leaders like Vladimir Putin to get their money into this country. And they do it because our government allows them to do it. So I love that that you set it up this way because I, I think a lot of our audience, um, I ran for office a few years ago in New York City for public advocate. Public advocate is the ombudsman of the city. Uh, its chief role is to investigate uh, uh, you know, different aspects of the city that are not, not yes. functioning, um, including, you know, holding the city council and the mayor accountable. And I ran a specific, you know, on many things, but, but really taking on real estate. And one thing that, um, it was a very short campaign. It was a, a special election. So <laughs> there wasn't a lot of time <laughs> to, to get the message out. So we went really bold. Uh, and one of the things I, I discussed was you look around at the city skyline. I, I live in Queens. I look at the skyline. It's right across the street from me. And so I see it every day. And there's a certain number of buildings, apartment buildings, that are empty. The skyline is not as lit up as it used to be. And the New York Times has done a lot of, of work on this. But part of yeah. that, as you know very well, is I don't know what the numbers are now, but I know at the a few years ago before the pandemic – you know, one out of four apartments, I believe, that was being sold in New York was being sold as a uh, a money placeholder for very wealthy individuals, many oligarchs, kleptocrats, to place their money in a safe market. I know you know about this issue. Um, and what my, my argument was, it wasn't just that this money, you know, they were purchasing in cash to store their money in a safe place in case their money was seized by their government or, you know. Right, right. Um, but it was affecting the real estate market of New York. Rents were going up. Uh, small businesses were, were were collapsing because with these big buildings comes the expensive, uh, you know, business markets. It was just Chase Banks and Rite Aids and these big companies and Whole Foods and no more mom and pops. And that has a direct effect on how a community survives. So to me, that seems very connected. Like, how is it that uh, an oligarch storing their money in, in an apartment how is it connected to somebody feeling like their their city is not supporting them? You, you you make a perfect point, and let me explain why. In this country, if we want to get Congress to do things against corruption, and we want to get Congress uh, and the White House 
to say everybody who buys an apartment should be recognized. They shouldn't be able to do this through some funny shell companies organized by their lawyers. Their identity should be known. <clears throat> and if they pay cash, which many of them do, the banks have to make sure they know where the cash came from, that it wasn't stolen cash. So in this country, we push that angle through national security. And there's a bipartisan support in Congress for that that says, yes, this is a national security threat. We don't want all these Russian oligarchs and all the other nasty guys around the world buying our investments. That's a security issue. In Europe and in Canada, the security argument doesn't work. There, the argument that works is exactly the one you said. They're buying up all our houses, all our properties, our pro and pushing us, the residents, right out of the city. Right. And London is, as I say in my book, is called London Grad, right? Like Peter Grad. Uh, it's London Grad. The Russians are everywhere in London in terms of ownership, but you don't see that many of them. Right, right. And <clears throat> so you have these whole empty squares of buildings. Nobody's there. People don't know if they have a neighbor. They never see the neighbor. Um, you have the same in Miami. You yes. have the same in Vancouver. Enormous amount of Chinese money has gone into uh, Western Canada. And in many cases, people don't know who the owners are. They're never there. They're never visible. Uh, you get it in Toronto. You get it in Munich, Germany. And so in many, many places, people, residents, are complaining that this is just outrageous, that uh, people who are, are unknown because of the shell companies they use uh, are buying up properties, pushing up rents, pushing up property prices, and pushing out residents. Yeah. And um, so my colleagues in Europe are pushing that angle, and in Canada, by the way, pushing that angle very, very hard. Whilst here in the United States, for some reason, that argument hasn't got national traction. Right. Uh, it should. And um, so we're pushing other arguments, but to get to the same goal, to expose all this, to bring it out into the sunshine. And you know what would happen? The day we can really achieve that, the demand for those apartments and houses will go right down because these people do not want to be identified. Now, that means they'll put their money in other things. Right. And so we have to go after that, too. And my, book deals, <laughs> well, my book really deals with that because they go into primarily into the stock markets mm -hmm. and into bonds. And that's where the bankers come in and the finance and the hedge funds and the private equity firms, because they are absorbing. Just take the U.S. I estimate at least 600 billion of dirty money comes into the U.S. every year. Hmm. That's bigger than the annual sales of Walmart. And Walmart accounts for 10% of all consumer spending in the U.S. Wow. So we're talking a large amount of money. So it's it's interesting because um, just before we, we, we move on to the other types of markets that they invest in, um, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In the U.S., perhaps one of the reasons why the traction is is not as, as strong in, as in Canada and in Europe we have such a problem with money and politics that the real estate, and I mean, I live in, I mean, New York, everything's about industries and industries. You have, you know, some unions that are dependent on, on buildings being built. So the building, building trades, 
are dependent on buildings being built. You have the real estate industry that doesn't obviously doesn't want to stop building buildings. And if, if they realize this is much money, um, and then of course they're all supporting politicians. And okay. I mean, I remember looking at the financials of of, of some of the most New York City city politicians have it's it's the third rail. You can't take on real estate in New York. And you can't name names. You can say, I'm not taking real estate money, but then well, they do. They try, find other you ways. Try, you try taking on the banks. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Is, so this is, so now you've got this. And then, and then, uh, but like, they don't have that issue in Europe. There's. Well, they do. Actually, they do. Uh, and, and it's a very tough nut to crack. And the Europeans and the Canadians are also fighting enormous resistance. Uh, and this comes to a very important point that I try and make in the book, which is the, first of all, the real estate people, real estate brokers at the moment do not have to even declare that they do any due diligence on who their customers are. By Under law, they don't have to do that. The art market, the auction houses can put up a, a picture for sale worth millions. They don't have to declare who's put it, who actually owns it. And they don't have to declare who buys it. And the secrecy is supported by enormous lobbying in Washington and campaign contributions. And, and this is the most important point. If you look at the top bankers in particular and the top lawyers, they are so politically networked. They are part of the influence elites uh, of Western countries. And what are they after? They are after ensuring that there is as little regulation as possible. Because once you have more regulation, you start to have transparency and accountability. They're against that. Yeah. And that's why, although my book is very much to explain to a wider audience about how this political corrupt system works and who the enablers are and how we interact with kleptocrats and our, uh, authoritarian regimes, who after all mean us no good and are undermining our democracy with our money. And we need to think about that. The main point is this is a political discussion because unless we really address regulation and money in politics and the influence of the financial enablers, uh, we will really not change this situation. It will get worse. So uh, help me understand um the pathway. So, you, you know, you start with, I mean, we, we can go back to obviously uh, the fall of, of, of the USSR, but, um, you know, a lot of kleptocrats seized up uh, oil, state resources, whatever, and have this money and, and some are warring with Putin, blah, blah, blah. We, we kind of have a sense of where that is, but they need to hide their money in case it's seized, right? Or, right. Right. or taxed or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then, you know, so, so tell me, help me understand how like, for instance, if you're a tech company, I'll start off with this way. If you're a tech company and you, one of your investors is a hedge fund, and yes. then how does the hedge fund, how is the money moving from the kleptocrat to the lawyer, to the hedge fund, to the lawyer, to the tech company, et cetera? What has really changed in the last 25 years is the enormous introduction of high-speed technology in global finance. Mm. Today, you can move money through the global finance systems in different currencies in split seconds. Wow. And millions and millions of transactions take place between different banks. 
So you are, for example, Isabel de Santos. You are the daughter of the former leader of Angola. You are the richest woman in Africa. And you know that the successor government to the one that your father ran now wants your money. And you're estimated to have two to three billion dollars in assets. You had it in banks in Portugal. You had it in banks in London. You had it in banks in Switzerland. But now you've got to move it again because who knows? These authorities may have relationships with different governments. You put it into one bank. It gets switched to another bank, then to another bank, and then in come the lawyers. And instead of your name being on the account, suddenly there's an account in the name of a Luxembourg company. Mm. And it turns out the Luxembourg company is owned by a company in the Cayman Islands, which is owned by a company that is registered in a trust in South Dakota, which in turn is owned by another company in Delaware. And you have all these layers of these holding companies, and nobody can trace it back to Isabel de Santos. Mm. And finally, the money arrives through 10 different banks into New York, where it is then moved, again, by financial consultants or lawyers into a hedge fund. It doesn't come under the name of Isabel de Santos. It comes under the name of one of these holding companies. And then it gets invested in the stock market. And when it comes to paying dividends, you have the reverse. Hmm. The money goes from the hedge fund into one of these shell companies, then another and another and another, then into the banking system and into wherever Isabel de Santos wants her money. Hmm. It is a absolutely complicated, high-tech universe of fast money, maybe $2 trillion of dirty money moving through the system every year. More money, dirty money, comes out of Africa every year than goes in in terms of foreign investment or foreign aid. It is a vast business. And you know what? We can do something about it. That's mm -hmm. the whole point. That's the whole point of me writing the book. Because we can stop the operations of the enablers on our shores. Sure, we can go after Putin and add sanctions on Mr. Putin and sanctions on Mrs. DeSantos and so on. But the real impact, hitting them where in their wallets, is by curbing the operations of all these enabling institutions that actually are resident here. And can be and can be regulated. I mean, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about uh, the natural resources that you know, creating an iPhone. Uh, you know, your iPhone, the natural resources that are extracted from parts of Africa and China, of course. Um, you know, it's like they're double dealing. You know, if they if they move the money and they're investing in Apple, then Apple is spending money there, and then of course there's government subsidies to do all these things. It's uh, not to mention all the aid. Um, it's really quite an ecosystem. But, but you know, sorry if I can just no, no of course. A second, these authoritarian regimes and many businesses work closely with organized crime mm -hmm. and they are all moving the money together. So when, for example, millions of human beings, mostly women are trafficked yeah. into slavery and prostitution from one country to the other, organized crime does that by paying off government officials to let these people go through their borders getting the visas, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. The money goes another channel, and it gets washed, it gets mm -hmm. laundered, and it ends up buying that Manhattan house, a, a apartment building that you see as pushing 
your fellow residents in, in New York out of, out of the property market. So there are these very important linkages. Mm -hmm. And sadly, we don't focus publicly in our publicly discussions enough about it. Now, President Biden has a summit meeting on December 10 and uh, December 9 and 10. A hundred governments have been invited to a virtual summit at the White House to counter authoritarianism. And the two days that he chose for this are really important because December 9 is the United Nations Anti-Corruption Day. Mm -hmm. And the following day is the International Human Rights Day because mm -hmm. the White House has recognized if you don't deal with human rights and corruption, you will never deal with the authoritarians. But they're not attacking the enablers here at home. So, so this is, I want to I want to touch on very, this for a second. Very important issue, I think. Because, you know, when when we were having this conversation um, for the few weeks in, in the lead up and afterwards of Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, I thought it was very important when and, and underplayed how he discussed the amount of money that was being poured into Afghanistan that was being wasted and abused and and in some cases, you know, criminal enterprises uh, came out of it by the government, including, you know, the president, each, each that was put in place by the U.S. Of course, we're taking advantage of that relationship uh, with the U.S. And you know, he talked about obviously other uh, implications of Afghanistan, but that really stood out to me because what you just said, the root of our money literally being, our, our country's money being invested in different regimes, um, and then, then the criminal enterprises that are formed out of it. So I thought that was a very bold move for democracy. And I'm curious, how bold do you think he will go? Is Do you think there's an actual appetite by the Biden administration? Or, or, I mean, in, in a place like New York, it is, it's too far. We've gone too far. Something has to happen. Bloomberg opened the doors when he was mayor and said, come, store your money. <laughs> I mean, Boris, it was- Boris Johnson in London has said the same thing. I to the couldn't believe it. When I heard this, I said, how are you getting away with saying this as the mayor? Uh, and, and, and so I'm curious- is there a different mindset in the Biden administration? Is there any hope that they're, they're actually going to crack down on some of this? I don't know. Uh, I've always been an optimist, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> but it's really tough. Let's just take your Afghan example. Mm -hmm. Over the 20 years that the U.S. was engaged in Afghanistan, the U.S. spent $145 billion on aid and reconstruction, not on the military, right? Now, the U.S. Inspector General for Afghanistan said huge amounts of that $145 billion was stolen and that our contributions are actually added to corruption in Afghanistan. Where did the money go? A lot of it went to Dubai. Uh, in fact, a lot of it went in actual shrink-wrapped bundles of $100 notes, tons of them from Kabul in Afghanistan, our money, of course, to Dubai, where it sort of disappeared. And, of course, ended up on Wall Street and who knows where, in those buildings again. So will the Biden administration attack this? I think there is a strong interest in ensuring that we at least know the identities of the people who buy the assets. Hmm. So I think we are going to see a stronger effort here in Canada and in Europe mm 
So truly unmask all of these individuals and the oligarchs. I don't know how successful that will be, but I think there's a big effort. So the place, I mean, the Panama Papers um, and the Pandora Papers, yeah. how much does this play into being able to expose these names? Look, if we didn't have investigative journalists of the kind that produced the Panama Papers and, uh, right. and, and all these other documents, and in fact, my stories about Isabel de Santos comes from what was called the Luanda leaks, which were the same journalists who produced that. They show in a small way individuals and the individual systems they use and the mansions they buy and the assets. And, and people can relate to that because it's, it's not these huge numbers that I've mentioned. It's case by case. Right. That shocks people that raises awareness, that adds to public pressures. But we, we need to be realistic. Our government, the governments in Europe, put very small amounts of money into enforcement of anti-corruption laws. If we don't have more public prosecutors with better resources and more FBI investigators and more bank regulators who are truly incentivized to do their jobs right. and not become put in the pockets of the banks they're meant to regulate. That's right. Then we're not going to make any difference. So it's not just laws. We need the administrative will. And I don't see it yet in the Biden administration. And, I, it's and I would argue that it's again money in politics that the influence of the biggest banks and real estate firms and law firms to dilute initiatives remains very, very strong, even when you've got Joe Biden in office, let alone Donald Trump. And we need to really push for tough enforcement. Otherwise, we're not going to change this. I mean, that's why I mentioned in New York. New York is uh, almost New York City. Um almost every single lawmaker in New York City is, is a Democrat. So you'd think, and not only that, they're claiming to be progressive Democrats, with the exception of our mayor now, our new mayor. Um, and they take the money from these interests. But I started off the show talking about this man, Stephen Donzinger, who's a, an attorney who who took on Chevron and won this this, this historic case, and then they came after him um, for racketeering. It was, it was right. a, it's a bogus charge, right? But how they were able to set it up was maneuvering and, and manipulating the legal system in which there was a judge who should be stepping down and and and, and recusing herself, uh, who was involved and and hired a. Pro it's, it's it's a crazy case that the international community has called out, but Merrick Garland is not taking this on, despite the fact that it's totally unprecedented. And what it reveals is exactly what you just said. This it's not just about having a, a legal system in place, but it's about having a legal system. And, and regulators who are not affected by these industries. I mean, there's a clear conflict of interest between this judge making money off of Chevron and overseas. You know, but we have this so widely. Let me just give you one more example. Just the same as what you've just said. A few years ago, HSBC, the biggest bank in Europe, was caught red-handed uh, with 100,000 accounts in its Swiss Geneva office of people who were evading taxes. Wow. 100,000 accounts. And you know who was arrested? The only person arrested was the whistleblower. <laughs> the Swiss arrested <laughs> the guy who, who revealed all of this tax evasion. 
And I could give you another, exactly the same story that happened in Greece. And I could go on. The whistle, what happened in Greece? Tell me this one. Well, it, it was an incredible thing. The government of Greece got 10,000 of these names from the same case from HSBC. Investigation. A couple of years later, a newspaper publisher, uh, a small newspaper, published a list of prominent Greeks who were on that list, including the father of the finance minister who should have been investigating. This is this year, right? No, no, this was about five years ago. And the result? The publisher was arrested. None of the people on the list were arrested. The guy who essentially blew the whistle, <laughs> he was the one who was arrested. And, you know, whistleblowers are so important in the Chevron case or in other cases. They are so important. They need protection. And unfortunately, they t uh, that's not the case. And you know why they're important? If you take, again, money laundering, $235 billion dollars went from Russia and Belarus and Azerbaijan through a tiny Danish bank as branch in Estonia. That was more money than the whole economy of Estonia. Wow. And nobody noticed for five years. And the only reason this came to light was because there was a whistleblower in the bank who said, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. This is dirty money. Well, something should be done about it. It's against the law. But the regulators didn't do anything about it. And I think they were in the pocket, frankly, of, of the banks. So, you know, this point that you're making about the case in Ecuador, which is so tragic, but it's also so serious. And we are not seeing the law enforcement that absolutely is critical to a democracy. It's interesting. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks would 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 look at somebody like Julian Assange as 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 an example of this. Um, I want to kind of <laughs> before we wrap, I just want to put a little twist on this. I believe in strong whistleblower laws protecting whistleblowers, but I almost feel like the Julian Assange situation has been a distraction from these other stories, which because it's because there's there's a there's a geopolitical game happening there, likely happening yes. there. Yes. Um, whereas if we really crack down on on and, and protected our whistleblowers who are you know parts of banks or you know newspaper editors or lawyers and had that kind of public awareness campaign uh, rather than folks who may have you know released information about uh, state secrets you know in terms of foreign policy, which obviously has a geopolitical game. Um, in a way, his case, I believe, has given cover for the U.S. government to not protect whistleblowers in well, many other institutions. Yeah, we, we are in a unique situation here because, interestingly enough, first of all, national surveys of workplace ethics in America show that 50% of the people surveyed, and these are very substantial surveys, are scared of blowing the whistle yeah. because of a retaliation in the workplace itself. So your basic point is absolutely right. Now, we have a crazy system in America on, on the other side because the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department uh, are willing to pay whistleblowers a percentage of the fines that finally are a result from settlements. So, for example, I know this sounds crazy. So interesting. A few years ago, 
The U.S. arrested a Swiss guy in New York who worked for a very big Swiss bank. And when he was sentenced to two years in prison, and when he was in prison, he released to the authorities, Justice Department, the names of all the people who had used his bank for tax evasion. Wow. In the end, the IRS went after a lot of those people. Uh, Huge amounts of money were recovered. The bank was fined a very large amount. As a reward, this man sitting in prison got $100 million. Wow. And one of the things the banks these days are really up in arms about is that the rewards can be so big that they incentivize whistleblowing, which, of course, is the whole name, whole aim of the whole program. So we are actually doing some good things in the U.S. on whistleblowing in the financial sector. But we're not enforcing nearly enough what I would call your due diligence and your real estate broker. Donald Trump's organization can sell apartments, condos, to shell companies through agents, and nobody needs to ask questions about who the real owner is and where the money came from. And that kind of system just cannot be allowed to continue. We have to break the political influence of the real estate people and, of course, the bankers. And that comes back to money and politics. It comes back to trusting your, your government. And I think the, the American people uh, have such low trust levels in government because they think it's screwed in such a way as to support only the wealthiest in this country and those with the greatest direct influence. Access is influence. The big bankers, big real estate brokers, and of course the lawyers have fantastic mm-hmm. access to members of Congress and to the White House, access that you and I could never have, and let alone all the people who watch your program. And somehow this has to change. And that's why I say this issue of enabling and corruption around the world comes down to politics of a very basic kind, which is trusting in our democracy. And we have to understand, and this is why I wrote the book, authoritarian regimes. Mm-hmm are using dirty money to directly interfere in our elections and German elections and French elections and other elections in order to undermine confidence in democracy. That's right. And it's part of the same system of enabling and of the dirty money that circulates with incredible speed through the global financial system. And, you know, if only... Little thing, you know, we talk about taxing the rich in this country, and that's a great campaign. But how about we just have these people that are buying these apartments get taxed? Then they're going to have to disclose. You know, you, you can't. Well, you've got to unravel all of this system, which allows you in South Dakota to create a trust where the identity of the owner is completely unknown. And, you know, the, the, the latest Paradise Papers shone a light on South Dakota. Yes. Yeah, Literally thousands of companies are being registered by people who knows who they are. New York lawyers are registering them for, I don't know, oligarchs uh, sitting in Russia or Azerbaijan or Belarus or all these other places. Do you think they know anything about South Dakota? Of course not. They have these enablers who help them to set it all up. 
That's right. And they use the loopholes of our law in order to, to find a pathway, basically to secretly and safely invest their loot, the money they steal from their people that impoverishes their people. Those are the victims. Frank Vogel, such a fascinating conversation. I, I, I mean, if you're open to it, I would love to have you on again so we can continue this conversation because uh, I could talk about this for hours and I, I'm sure others would be interested in listening to. Um, well, let's look at the Biden summit and let's see if that really does something. And I perfect. hope to push your listeners to, you know, push the government to do something about it. The Enablers, you can check it out. We're going to have the, the link in the description here. Uh, it's, it's out. He's done the work. Stay safe. It's not a safe game to do this kind of work. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Actually, before we wrap, uh, how did you get this published? With difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said. I can tell you that there were a number of publishers, uh, for example, in the United Kingdom, who turned it down because they were worried about libel uh, and lawsuits and so on. Um, but you know, you have to do this. Yeah. Uh, you have to get the stories out. You have to sensitize a broader public to what's really going on because I believe, I've always believed, if we can get the information out, then the action will follow. Absolutely. And that's why I applaud the, 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 these fantastically courageous journalists who got out the Paradise Papers and who get out all these other stories. Without them, uh, we would be a much weaker democracy. 100%. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for joining Thank us. So much. Hope to Thank have you back you. on soon. Appreciate it. Okay. All the best. We will be right back after this quick little break. Sunset Lake CBD is that magical farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has all sorts of products for everybody, whether it's coffee or salves or gummies or tinctures, and they're all designed to help you with your aches and pains. They're originally a farm. They like changed and diversified a farm in Vermont that was a Ben and Jerry's farm. Uh, they are doing the great work of improving their community through sustainable agriculture and providing meaningful employment, employment, enhancing the rural economy of Vermont. They pay their workers a $15 minimum wage and their workers own the majority of their company. And then on top of all that, they are supportive of independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The Majority Report, and The David Pakman Show. Um, they, I, I mean, we talk about their products all the time. I now have those little rolled joints, CBD joints, uh, which help me when I get my migraines, which I had one the other day and I, I woke up with it and I took a little bit of that and it cured it. It was amazing. And it calms you down at the same time without making you a little high like other things do. Um, I work with all the sorts of products. I have this amazing lotion now that has, has CBD and hemp and it's, I put it on my back when I have sore back. It's a real quality product. You know I talk about it all the time. I have tried CBD at other places. It does not have the same effect. Sunset Lake CBD is really the best CBD I've ever had. And it prevents me from doing other things because it's so effective and I can still work throughout the day um, having used their products. It also helps me sleep. You, if you haven't tried it yet, you can get 20% off of your entire order. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. There's a new tincture out right now. It has 
1,200 milligrams of CBD oil infused with 90 milligrams of melatonin. It helps you get to sleep and stay asleep. That's the combination. It's really effective, especially if you're like me. I can't sleep at night. So I definitely recommend you go check that out. That is out as right now. It's a new product. Yeah, it's out on the market. All right. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Braxton Brewington is the press secretary for the Debt Collective. We have talked about the Debt Collective and the incredible work that they're doing, uh, a national debtors union fighting to cancel debts and defend millions of households. Uh, There is a new project that they're working on right now. Uh, We've been working on it for the last month or so, where they are erasing $3 million of probation debt uh, and launching a bail dispute tool. Welcome to the show, Braxton. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Very excited as well. So this is this is big stuff. It's 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 funny. I was actually talking to somebody in California uh, just the other day, uh, and and this is my editorializing, but uh, it was a conversation about Kamala Harris because there's this this big issue with her right now, and 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 how much of it is is accurate. We don't know, but. Um, this person was a communications professional and said, you know, she could help herself a little bit. You know, she had her previous role where she was a prosecutor and 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 she uh, had some very uh, controversial positions and and uh, a very controversial record about um, siding with essentially police and and the criminal, you know, whatever their agenda is to to lock up and imprison uh, black and brown communities. Across California. Why doesn't she just come out and say, you know, I have learned a lot of time has, has passed since then, and now I'm committed to racing uh, the records and expunging the records and the debts of a certain number of, of imprisoned or formerly incarcerated folk in, um, in California. And so to see this work and how important it is, it would be amazing if she backed it. I think that would really help change the narrative, or the Biden administration did so. Um, so I, I, I want to leave with that because this is just a conversation I was having like yesterday. And then to read about the work you're doing, um, all it seems like she could just back your work. So tell us, what are you guys doing? Well, we are a um, anti-racist, anti-capitalist organization doing anti-racist, anti-capitalist organizing, anti-carceral system. So um, if we can get... Vice President Harris to back that, then that would be amazing. Um, but I, I wonder why she's not, <laughs> why that hasn't already happened yet. Um, so what the Debt Collective is doing is we are really trying to raise questions like who owes what to whom, right? What is debt? Who owes it? Or who is told that we owe it? Um, can we challenge this phony morality around debt? And so one of the ways that we can do that is by working to discharge certain types of debt or to purchase the debt ourselves and then abolish it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is such an interesting concept, this idea that your debts are up for sale and sold on a market to people, but you can't buy it yourself, right? Huh. And so with the carceral system broadly, what we've done is we've first launched a tool, which right now works for the state of California. California has these decent consumer protection laws that say there's certain types of things for specifically bail debt, bail bonds companies cannot do. So for example, if I were to have a conversation with, um, you know, what's largely happening is black and Latino men being arrested, put in jail, 
often the women of color and their families are um, have to sign these very expensive predatory bail bonds contracts. The national bail average is $10,000, but in California, it's $50,000. And wow. so what? what these mostly people, mostly women of color are doing, they sign these bail bonds com- contracts. So say you... Um, you know, have a conversation with a bail bonds company in Spanish, and then they give you a a contract to sign in English. Or say, um, you know, you get a bunch of harassing phone calls or knocks on your door to pay back to pay back this bail debt. Those are types of things based off of California consumer protection law are eligible to have that bail debt canceled or discharged, null and void. Right? If an individual were to simply try to assert this legal right, these bail bonds companies are so powerful and violently predatory that it it may be a bit difficult. And so what the tool is doing is this abolish bail debt tool is streamlining this entire process, leveraging all of these applications at once and saying we demand an entire discharge or write down for all of these individuals who, you know, meet these certain qualifications based off of protect consumer protection law that says that these debts are eligible to be disputed. At the same time that's happening for the state of California, we're also buying and erasing private probation debt that is in mostly the U.S. South, mostly Mississippi and Floridians, right? So we, for the quote unquote low cost of $98,000 were able to purchase nearly $3.3 million, three pennies on the dollar. We're able to purchase over $3 million worth of private probation debt. And so we sent letters to the 20,522 individuals that says, you no longer owe this debt. It is a gift, no strings attached. You know, you don't owe this balance anymore to a creditor, to um, anyone um, because we've abolished it. And so you know, that is an act of solidarity that we've sort of revived. It's called the Rolling Jubilee. We've revived this act of solidarity because the pandemic is hitting people in such, um, you know, terrible ways. But we also want to highlight the connection between carceral debt in California and carceral debt in Mississippi or Florida and say that even though this is probation debt and this is bail debt, or some people may have restitution or fines and fees, that all of this is part of a larger carceral system and that we need a shared identity of a debtor to band together to reject some of this, um, you know, unjust debts. And so that's what we've done with carceral debt. We aim to possibly by other different debt types um, in the future, as we've done in years past, to really just, again, highlight the absurdity that your debts are for sale and that they are also sell for super cheap and you can't buy them yourself, right? And so it's just a very predatory system. So when, when somebody else buys these debts, I mean, can we talk about some of the institutions that buy them or, or people? or I don't, I don't even know. I mean, is, is it something like... Are there insurance companies doing this? Is it is it universities? I mean, I, this is such a crazy concept when you dig in. Yeah, it, it stems from larger companies to like a few people who have their own smaller company who probably operate in like a basement and have a couple of people to track down, um, you know, folks via the phone or knock on their doors. Um, so what happens is once you're you know, debt is goes into some type of collection. It's yeah. been sold either by a university, by the U.S. government, by uh, whoever the creditor may be, onto the secondary debt market. And so it's 
it's really shady. It's a really uh, shady network of buyers and sellers, and it's extremely lucrative. And they are li- quite literally profiting off of people's pain. And so, it's a bit difficult. You know, we we love this idea of the rolling jubilee, but it's 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 not sustainable, right? We can't buy everyone's debt. Um, I can't simply search Nomi in like a debt database and see all of your debt and then purchase it. It's much more difficult than that in terms of you don't even see the names or the addresses on portfolios until you purchase it. Right. And so um, you also don't want to have a bad purchase. Right. So if I purchase a portfolio of debt and it's mostly of um, deceased individuals, right. That's not a debt worth buying. Right. And so we want to make sure that we have good purchases and we obviously ethically do not want to give any money to this um, industry at all. Right. Unless we know it's a good purchase, unless it's really going to help people. And so it's really tricky. It's, it's really particular. um, And, you know, we are, that's why we shut it down years ago because it's just simply not sustainable, but the pandemic, you know, hitting us in 2020 or even earlier has really changed all of that. And we see this as an act of solidarity, but largely like this is what happens. Your debt is sold and resold and then resold for pennies on the dollar on the secondary market. And oftentimes the person that's harassing you to pay back this debt is like not even your creditor. It's someone who's who just bought it for two pennies on the dollar and is trying to rack up as much cash as they can until they sell it off to somebody else. So, how does this tie into the the eliminate bail bond movement? And I mean, is there debt beyond bail bonds? Is this does this go down to prison debt? Where you know we start off the show talking about Stephen Donzinger uh, and and how he's in prison right now, and he was just describing. I think a lot of folks are familiar with this, but you know how how folks need to have pay for toothpaste and deodorant and 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 you know soap while in prison, and of course they can rack up debt if there's a um, if they're issued you know credit in, in a prison. Um, how does it, does it extend to that? Like where, where does the debt start and end? Well, so we are, we're an abolitionist organization, right? We, the prison industrial complex complex should not exist, right? At the very least, we should not be financing our own incarceration. And, and that is what we're really trying to highlight that there are, you know, debtors' prisons, first of all, were outlawed so many years ago. And yet that's exactly what we're seeing in Mississippi and California, all across the country. And so what we're really trying to do, I think, is draw a line, really connect the dots of all of this carceral debt and and have people understand that if you have a fine and free, fine or fee from the court, if you have bail, if you have probation debt, Right, that all of this is part of a larger system. If you have immigration debt, right, all mm-hmm. of this is part of a detention, um, carceral, um, you know, prison, prison adjacent, if you want to call it that system, and that it's all unjust. It's all illegitimate types of debt, and so we want to eliminate all of it. And that's going to take a lot of work. That might take legislation. Might take the debt collective buying debt or disputing certain types of debt, or it might take people refusing to pay back debt, what we call economic disobedience, you know, going on strike to refuse yeah. to pay certain types of debt. And that's just not carceral debt. That's medical, student loan, payday loans, credit card debt, all types of um, what we, you know, household debt framework that we use in terms of 
the system of financialization where we have moved away from the government financing our basic needs to individuals debt finance and families and households debt financing our basic needs. So that's are there certain are there certain states, um, you know, like if New York or California, or maybe it has happened, um, <clears throat> where they have passed some laws that are industry changers, meaning, you know, no more private prisons or uh, you know, and eliminate bail bonds or whatever it is, um, no cash bail. Um, is there any sort of like law that has influenced this or if something were to pass in California or New York, it would change the industry? I'm not sure about that. Um, it's just reassuring. It, it, I feel like you would know. <laughs> I, uh, I wish I knew. And I hope I, it's just that I haven't done my homework, homework on it. I mean, what we saw in Florida, that was the, the huge, um, ballot initiative yeah. in Florida years ago. And then what happened was state legislatures had some type of interpretation that, well, yeah. you're still incarcerated if you have this debt, right? And so we absolutely need federal and state legislation. I am not familiar with the great <laughs> legislation that's been out there. I know there were efforts in California that were then, you know, overturned or, you know, taken back. And ultimately what we know is, you know, we unfortunately have not been able to rely on the state for this type of, you know, solidarity with individual people. And so that's why we are, you know, going on strike. And that's why we're forming a debtor's union, because we're saying our best chance at leveraging power is our finances, right? Our debt, we see our debts as assets. And so that asset might actually be more powerful than the federal government who is dragging their feet on all types of debt cancellation, not just student debt, right? Medical debt and other debt types as well. Debtor power might be our strongest form of resistance in a similar way that like, so was labor, right? We, We know that one individual, you know, asks their boss or demands from their boss better wages or higher pay that that might not likely happen. But it's going to take uh, all of the John Deere workers and all of the Amazon workers, right, to come together and to, you know, make a national campaign about it and to band together. And so I think debtor organizing is, you know, we think debtor organizer, debting organizer is going to you know, really present that same level of opportunity. And so I would love for the state, you know, for the federal government to pass those laws and and, and hopefully they're out there. I can't speak to them much, but I, I think what it's going to come down to is debtors will always have that power as long as we have debt, as long as we are in this financial bind. And so that's really where we see a lot of our, our organizing strength. Um, how can people help out? Join the Debt Collective. We are the nation's first debtors union. Um, you can join by giving as much as you can or for $0 a month because we are a debtors union. And so uh, you can join for $0 a month, absolutely. And be a member of the Debt Collective. So you can go to debtcollective.org. We are, um, I just told someone that we certainly run our mouth on social media. So you can go to the Debt Collective on Instagram or at Strike Debt on Twitter. I think we have a TikTok along the similar lines. Got it up on screen right now. <laughs> yeah, so feel free to, um, you know, please join us there because there's so much action that we have to take. And the more individuals that join, the more leverage that we have. And so, um, you know, there's folks, um, there's chapters all across the country in Chicago and LA and New York where folks can join and really get into the specific types of debt that they have in their own local community. I don't want to take too much time, but... 
I want to shout out those amazing organizers in Philadelphia who are organi- organizing around school lunch debt, right? Oh my That's God, this is just children. Real. Yeah. Um, and there's folks doing debt schools um, in New York City. And so there's plenty of, of ways to get involved and to do stuff on a national level and in your local community. So. Braxton, thanks for doing this work. It's really creative and thoughtful. And, you know, unfortunately, we shouldn't have to be doing this uh, type of these types of actions. But thank you for doing it. We really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. Braxton Brewington from the Debt Collective. All right. We will be right back with our amazing panel. We have Rose Adams and Jordan Zacharin to talk about actually a lot of organizing. I think most of the news that we're going to talk about today is just actions that are happening across this country uh, around labor. And and it's so encouraging. And so uh, it makes, it, it fills my heart to see so many people organizing in response to pandemic um, and just how the conditions have gotten so out of control. They already were, but you've seen, you've seen a rise obviously with uh, organizing over the last few months. So we're going to talk about that. All right, we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. It is the panel time. We have Rose Adams, who is a reporter uh, and a former politics fellow at The Intercept. She has covered New York City politics, the Brooklyn paper and AM New York. Uh, And then we have Jordan Zacharin, who's a media producer for More Perfect Union and, of course, the founder of Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Here they are. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the panel. Thank you. Um, thanks for your patience. We're way over on our schedule right now. Um, okay, so this is like an incredible time where organizing is is really happening all around the country. And I mean, every day I'm like another another company, workers from another company are organizing. I know Jordan, you're working on this. Do you have a sense of how many? Uh, do you have like a map? Is there, is there any sense of how much organizing is happening around the country right now? I mean, if we talk about organizing, we talk about striking. Like those are yeah. obviously, obviously two different things. I mean, striking in California nearly and, and West Coast nearly had the Kaiser strike of like 30, 40,000 people. That ended up not happening because they were able to beat the two-tier wage uh, structure, which was, was pretty huge. IATSE uh, would have been another gigantic strike. And, yeah. you know, they you talk about how that election went down but uh, on the vote, but they got, you know, they at least got better deal than what they would have gotten otherwise. Seeing a lot of you know, seeing a lot of organizing. I've been following Starbucks a lot. You know, there's there's a lot of places that, you know, what's interesting is a lot of places are going on strike and people are finally noticing. You know, a lot of places threatening strikes. I mean, we're looking at Houston and Kroger in Houston announced today that they had authorized a strike by like 97. percent And yeah, I you know it's the interesting thing is the numbers aren't necessarily all that much higher than any other year in terms of strikes, but like people are paying attention and they're sympathizing. I think that and that makes a big difference. And I think combined with that and a rising wages. Be people quitting in mass the way they had it before, and a lot of people out of work for a really long time, and yet still these number of people going on strike uh, and making the point that hey, we were essential workers, we were people that like busted our asses during the pandemic, and I think there's a lot more empathy and interest in strikes than there had been before, and so I think that even if the numbers aren't huge, um, that it's it's happening nationwide and people are paying attention. And then of course there's there's a, a, an addendum to that is there's a lot of folks who are organizing unions yes. who are trying to build unions. Um, so, but before we we talk about some of this a little bit more in depth, I I, I speaking of people on, in a more outside of the left media basically uh, covering this, John Oliver did a very long piece on what union busting looks. I I, I thank God, man, this guy he really 
take some risks sometimes. So we're going to play just a snippet of that and people can go check it out. We'll, we'll, it's linked out on the internet um, so you can see it for free now. You don't have to subscribe to his show on HBO. So let's play this clip. The institutions that brought us the weekend, the middle class, and in the case of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, an absolute banger of a song. And before we play this, <laughs> I have a favourite singer here. See if they're yours too. Look okay. the union label when you are buying some dress of pause to wonder how many of them are dead now. And, and by the way, yes, my favourite singer is the and run the house lady. She's, she's the only one who gets to have a dramatic entrance. Also, she's got a fabulous mushroom haircut, wide lapels and the voice of an angel. Every singer in that song is a star, but she is the brightest in the galaxy. <laughs> now, that ad, if it weren't obvious from every single thing about it, is from the early 1980s. And unfortunately, since then, union membership has declined considerably. Today, just over 10% of American workers belong to a union. That is just half the rate it was in 1983, meaning we're currently living in one of the worst times for organised labour in our country's history. And it's not like the demand isn't there. Nearly half of non-union workers say they would like to be in a union, and a lot of workplaces do seem like a natural fit for one. Take Amazon. You've likely heard the infamous stories of drivers for the company being forced to pee in bottles in order to make quotas. Stories that Amazon initially denied, then apologised for denying, finally admitting that, yeah, OK, their drivers do sometimes have to piss in bottles. It's like the old adage, "'Tis better to seek forgiveness than permission, unless this is about piss bottles, in which case, take a look at yourself, man, what are you even doing? Okay. Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> OK. So, obviously, uh, you know, he, he, he really leads folks in um, with humour. But uh, the, the, the big takeaway there is, yes, unions are, are weaker than ever um, since organised labour has been able to exist in this country. Are the conditions right? We'll start with you, Rose. Uh, do we feel the conditions are ripe for the PRO Act to pass, for, for labor to be able to take on uh, these big interests that have just been, you know, exploiting uh, them over, especially last year? I, I mean, it seems like they are to me. It, there's just this, as, as Jordan was saying, this greater focus on, on um, you know, essential workers and labor in general. Uh, and even, even on the other side, there's just a lot of talk. Labor is constantly in, in the center of the news cycle and, you know, whether there are enough workers and there's a worker shortage. And it's just kind of the talk of the town in a way that I don't remember it being nearly as much before COVID, uh, especially for, you know, lower wage workers who I think, you know, th their, their struggles weren't nearly as taken into account as it seems like or as central to the media narrative as they seem to be now. So, uh, and that combined with, you know, this pro act fight, which has gone on for a little while now, I think it's, it's helped pick up steam. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a little optimistic about it, but I think that at the very least, if it's not happening, if it's not going to yield action now, it's setting the stage up for the future for, um, you know, these issues to be discussed and, and for some regulation on, um, you know, anti-union behavior that's allowed to, to be allowed to be set in. 
So yesterday, uh, Jordan, we <laughs> had a show where we were updating folks on the membership of the DNC, the appointed membership who who are um, who are who are on certain committees that oversee the rules, the DNC. And these committees, I like to say, they're like fiscal control boards, meaning it's great that you have a democracy in the DNC and you have all these elected members who want to do great things, including labor, uh, but you've got you know, a rules committee that's all appointed by whoever the chair wants them to be you know, on that rules committee or the executive committee. Turns out um, some of these people are lobbyists for Coke Industries. And other and Pepsi, Pepsi Cola or Pepsi Inc. I don't know what the name the company is, um, and weapons manufacturers. But quite a few of them work with uh, companies that are union busting or have no interest in having uh, a strong labor force. And of course, Coke Industries has the Coke brothers put a lot of money into making sure labor uh, was has been weakened to the point where it is today. So on one hand, I'm like, oh God, I have so much hope. But you know, you had a DNC that that used to have more labor, and then they replaced it with lobbyists, and it's literally Coke lobbyists now. So how can these? How can, do we expect a pro act to happen when you've got a you know, it's the Biden's DNC. He wants the pro act, but then he gets you know, these people are appointed by essentially him. Right. Uh, you know, I will say that one thing that I've been excited by, and we're still waiting to see results, are like the the people that Biden has put in the NLRB and the. And OSHA and uh, FTC that, you know, Lena Khan and Jennifer Bruzzo and uh, folks like that who actually have a great track, track record of, you know, being pro worker and, you know, whether they can get it done uh, once they're in office, different story. But you know, actually today there's a NLRB and um, a, a Equal Opportunity Commission and a couple other people are having a big meeting about, you know, what, what resp- a dialogue about what employers' responsibilities are um, in terms of union busting and like treating people uh, you know, with a little bit of respect and not crushing their skulls if they try and organize. And uh, I think that's the first step. I mean, with the PRO Act, you know, I think it's shown that they're serious about it. A little, inside, I guess, inside information it wasn't really made public, but the the acting or the the, the acting uh, interim regional director in Buffalo, the Buffalo area, uh, for that was kind of holding up the Starbucks organization for a long time because Starbucks wanted to have all 20 stores in Buffalo vote as a unit for the union, uh, you know, because they would dilute it and water it down and have Howard Schultz come in there and, uh, you know, talk about Nazis and all that. Um, they, you know, they, for a long time, I still they were can't get over that. Yeah. For a long time, they were holding it up. <laughs> they replaced the uh, interim director after a lot of, you know, appeals. And I don't know if like, it was directly because of that, but the new director immediately said, no, it's got to be unit by unit. And they're appealing that. But the point is that, like, they are, you know, this NLRB is showing some, you know, backbone or saying, no, you, you got to follow the rules and not just, not just buckling or not just delaying, delaying, delaying like the NLRB software does. Uh, and in terms of the PRO Act, look, I don't think that the whole thing's going to get passed. It doesn't even have 50 Democratic votes because, um, you know, uh, Kirsten Cinema, Mark Warner, all these folks, they are not, uh, I mean, they're as much in, more than in the pocket of uh, you know, the people who are running the DNC, right? Those are the people, uh, the Koch brothers and all those lobbyists, like they, they work for them. But the Build Back Better Act, should it uh, get passed, um, and should it survive the parliamentarian? You know, so yeah. it's two big things. Uh, it has a lot of the, or at least some of the provisions of the PRO Act. It has stuff that would, you know, create now like actual financial penalties for union busting, not just right. as John Oliver talks about, uh, you know, uh, back pay and uh, a little bit of cash. You know, maybe you get your job back, even though, again, that happened with Tesla workers, they fired and they're still waiting to get their jobs back. Yeah. So they appeal, they appeal, they appeal. And so there would be some teeth put in it, you know, maybe like baby teeth, but it was start. Um, but, you know, if the parliamentarian allows it, we'll see. I, I don't know that Democrats are going to overrule her for anything, but, 
you know, th- there should be some income there. Like if the people will be fined, you know, there'll be big federal fines. So uh, theoretically, should get through. So like, there's baby steps, but certainly the more you're, the more like uh, the party controlled by fundraising, controlled by lobbyists. It'll constantly they, get that attention. And they don't even need the money. I mean, that's the crazy part. It's like, this is a this is a party. It used to be that, oh, we need the money, the lobbyists. Well, no, you actually don't. You've raised more money than you've ever raised in the history of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's, so. it's almost sad the amount of money that they get from grassroots uh, people. And they look at like someone like Bernie or any any candidate that has shown like, any backbone has no problem raising money. I, I think it's a matter of like, are you in my bubble? Am I in that bubble? And do I have a great job lined up for the future? It's a can't, or do my friends have jobs lined up? It can't be just about... Oh, look, you need to be competitive. Yeah. Really? Because you're doing so well at that. Yeah. Um, how about you? I mean, I'm just going to say, I'm going to guess that the Coke lobbyist doesn't want to fund state parties because, like, his <laughs> bosses might be a little mad. Okay. So, so Starbucks, um, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, there's been, I'm from Buffalo. I'm, uh, I've been to many of these Starbucks and, and it's really powerful to see what's, what's happening um, and encouraging in, in a town that, you know, in I grew up in Buffalo where these factories were all completely wiped out and they were, I mean, it was, it was, it was disgusting. I mean, honestly, like I, as a kid, it was very normal for me to just see like completely, it looked like a war, you know, like a, a war-torn factories. Like there had been bombs that had blown up these factories because they just let them deteriorate huge blocks of land. Um, and that's because of course of, 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 the attacks on labor starting in the Carter administration didn't happen with NAFTA that affected um, different parts of the country more, but it started with Carter. And it's just so encouraging, you know, 35, 40 years later to see how Buffalo is really kind of coming around. And there's a lot of organizing, whether it's, you know, Mercy Hospital or Starbucks or other uh, spots in, in the city. So let's play this clip of, of uh, what's happening. I hired in August and... Multiple weeks went by, no training. Before I even poured one cup of coffee, I had already been attending these uh, anti-union meetings and listening sessions that they were asking me to go to. It's supposed to be them listening to us about you know things in our store that we want to be improved, but it's usually the first 25, 30 minutes is them talking at us. And generally, at this point, it's all anti-union. It started off the first two meetings were kind of... Um, we're here to help you. You raised your hand. We're so excited to be here and fix things. And then they've gotten progressively, they've broken us into smaller groups. Um, they've scheduled these so that the most vocal of us are in one group and the quieter people are in other groups. So, I mean, it's it's blatantly obvious to us, and I'm, I'm sure that they know that. I'm just not so sure that they care. I started thinking it was kind of strange because for a store that was so short-staffed and had so many call-outs and really needed uh, new people to work, uh, I had been hired multiple weeks before that, and I would have been ready to train the very next day. And I was basically just sitting around waiting to get trained. And they could have reached out to me, and nobody did. So I, th- I thought it was just kind of suspicious, okay. and I started to kind of wonder, like, okay, is it because they saw me talking to union uh, supporters, or is it because, like, it could have been a lot, you know, like, who knows? So... A little bit of, I mean, I think one aspect of this is it's 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 really uh, interesting to have a personal take. I think a lot of the organizing has happened quietly, and now it seems like folks are being much more vocal, like the Starbucks workers. And at the same time, there's a press that seems suddenly interested in labor, like it didn't exist before. Um, 
Rose, I mean, do you th- if they succeed or don't succeed, they don't succeed, for instance, um, do you think that there's another shot? Do you think that this is, I mean, some of these cases, they're not succeeding in their organizing, um, but partially because of some of the stuff that's happening like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, I, there's there's just a lot of, I can't imagine the issues of unions kind of going away. I mean, if this doesn't work, if they're not able to unionize or whatever, whatever happens, I, this seems to me to be something that's going to continue going in the direction that it's going in and probably even accelerate in that, in that direction of, you know, these huge companies, Amazon, Starbucks that have endless power. I mean, they're not going to suddenly, uh, you know, start treating their workers amazingly and have no, no need for union. You know, no, there's always going to be a sort of effort to, unionize, um, or at least a drive to change their conditions. So to me, um, yeah, I think that it's, I don't know a lot of specifics about the Starbucks example, but it seems like in general, it's, it's definitely going in that direction. And Jordan, uh, Howard Schultz said that they have a blanket that they get to sometimes share with five Mm -hmm. people. Um, and I think that's his metaphor for like a $15 minimum wage and like the fact that they pay for college, uh, but you know, let's continue as net metaphor. What concentration camps are they heading to, and who's who are the Nazis in this situation? Yeah, I think the fifteen. I think the the the, the blanket was him saying that you know, get on the train and think about your family. Um, but if you continue, if you continue organizing, um, no, yeah, I think what's oh, is that what he yeah, meant? Yeah, I think he's like it's very much like are we the baddies type situation here. Well, what's the blanket um, then? Uh, I think the blanket is. Um, we'll give you a cup of coffee. Um, I, I think like his, honestly, like from what I've heard from talking to people there, like they declared three more stores kind of after Howard Schultz's visit and it doesn't like they filed for elections and, you know, it doesn't mean that necessarily like, they're going to get elections right away or that they even have like, you know, overwhelming support, but more and more people are kind of going to the union side because of these heavy handed tactics. I mean, they said, they saw that one guy, RJ, RJ talking Everyone I've spoken to says that they have to retrain workers once yeah. they get, you know, once they get them back from, uh, you know, once once they're hired, because all these people being hired are just being hammered with anti-union propaganda, not actually like how to make coffee. And so, you know, oftentimes they bring in these new people to just like break the union, right? They're supposed to be like anti-union. Are you serious? They don't. Yeah, know they they, they hammer them with anti-union facts and say, "All right, go." And so the union uh, members are like, "All right, I guess we'll teach you how to do this." And uh, I think their affinity ends up going with like the, their young uh, friends who are, you know, union members. And so, um, you know, we, we saw the videos they tried to put out uh, saying, you know, they're super, you know, don't, don't vote for the union because it's, it'll take away your freedom. And it's just very like, hey, fellow kids, you know, that type of thing where um, <laughs> no matter what they do, they're never going to be as young and cool as these union members or as these organizing members. And that's the thing, like, you know, a lot of the unions we talk about, we talk about John Deere, we talk about, uh, you know, all, all these other places like Kellogg's, like, they're mostly, not all, but mostly like a lot of them are older workers and the ones that are on strike, yeah. strikes often end because they got families to take care of. They've got, uh, you know, they want to get to retirement. A lot of times, you know, they take, they take contracts even before they go on strike because they're like, I got 40 years here. I just want to, just want to, you know, get out of here with, you know, my job and my whatever pension or 401k I have. And these are all like young people. A lot of them are just really young and like they can take the insane hours. They can handle like the garbage from Howard Schultz and laugh about it and make memes about it afterwards till 1 a.m. in the union office. And so I'm not saying that they're going to win, but um, this is very much a very different type of anti-union. Anti, this is a very much different type of people that are unionizing. Right. Versus the ones that are being crushed, let's say, like Amazon. You know, not to say that folks here and working here don't need the money. I mean, you know, you don't Buffalo, they need the money. Yeah, like, you, you need the money, but they're also like living with roommates or they are, 
you know, all kind of all in it together versus an Amazon investor, right? You know, those are yeah. those people who are just really hard up. And so, uh, again, these are young people who crush their student debt, but there's a little bit, I don't want to say less urgency, but it's going to be hard to crush their spirits, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because uh, my immediate reaction was, you know, obviously Starbucks is not a great company. I mean, no, Howard Schultz is not a great person. Let's just say that. But they do, they did do more than most American companies do. So it was really phenomenal that this was able to happen. I think you just, you highlighted why. Let's pivot just a little bit because um, the Teamsters, uh, you know, there, another aspect is traditional unions. There's obviously there's different unions. You have unions led by people like Sarah Nelson. You have the National Nurses, you know, union that are very progressive. You have unions, um, you know, Sarah Nelson is an actual flight attendant. So she comes from the actual uh, workforce. Uh, and then there are unions that are led by yeah, lawyers, and uh, and they're often at odds with their membership. Plenty of unions we could talk about. And then there are other unions that are a little more conservative because they rely on industries that are like, you know, the building trades, for instance, relying on real estate and obviously uh, the police union. So t- some conversations are happening about reforming unions internally and these, these leadership elections. The Teamsters are going through that right now. Jordan, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Um, we're gonna we're gonna skip the clip, but can you give us a little rundown on what's happening? And, and Rose, I'd love to get your reaction. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing both Teamsters and UAW. Yep. These these big, classic. I mean, you know, org- uh, these labor unions that have been around not since the beginning, but kind of came out of the New Deal, came out of that era. All the sit down strikes, the UAW Teamsters. You know, in terms of the transportation, whether it was on the rail or whether it was driving in trucks. Like these, they kind of help build the labor movement, but I think for a lot of reasons, you know, again, like uh, I prefer them to the the employers, but a lot of them are end up being very stale, and you know, it, and like anything, uh, power kind of corrupts and it ends up rotting from the head, and uh, people end up being, you know, it, it, I hear a lot from a lot of workers. And I'm talking to a lot of UAW workers lately, and it's probably can stand for both. Uh, you know, like I think my shop steward's in the pocket of the boss, right? To give them a little bit better perks. I think that like, oh, he just wants to get through his day, and you know, doesn't want to fight, so I put up complaints, put up complaints. Uh, yeah, they're they're taking my pay, taking my pay, but it doesn't end up really doing anything. And so I think a lot of people are frustrated. A lot of times, contracts are taken without anyone even having the opportunity to read it. You know, I think uh, the first deer offer they were able to read for like half an hour, like an hour, like a, a, maybe a day beforehand. And they were kind of shocked when everyone said no, because they had, they were, they were done with it. And the same thing goes with the Teamsters. And so at the same time that people are saying, no, we're done with the, the crap employers are giving us to think a lot of them are saying that about their union heads, uh, you know, and the, these people who have been, you know, they may, a lot of them may have come from working in those jobs, but have been out of it for so long that, you know, they don't necessarily have to worry about the contract when it comes to their own livelihoods. I think it's the same thing you see with the democratic party, right? Like these, uh, people, they can, it's all numbers to them. They will be fine. And so I think a lot of union members want this urgency that they're not getting from their leadership when it comes to strike, when it comes to negotiation tactics. And the Teamsters United, to go back to them, uh, they are doing much better. And when you see the individual votes coming out, the, the reform slate is doing far better than the than Jim Hoffa's handpicked uh, folks. So, you know, it, it's Teamsters, they, they've, they tried to start an ambitious plan about organizing Amazon. And, you know, I think they want, there's more aggression there. And so, I think all of that's in a good direction, but I don't think any of this even would have happened without this idea that there was a threat. I mean, the last election, they only lost by a few thousand. And so wouldn't be surprised to see Teamsters and UAW reform slots win. We're going to um, shift really quick to Amazon in a second, Rose. Um, but on that note, while we hear just a 
sliver of a, of some leaked audio uh, from from an Amazon facility. Um, Chris Smalls, who's who's a very well known Amazon uh, organizer, anti Amazon organizer or worker um, from Staten Island, who uh, you know had a lot of issues from and exposed a lot of the issues in the warehouses um, in Staten Island. He famously does not want to join uh, a an existing rank and file union or just union like RWDSU was was the union that organized in Bessemer. And, and, and part of that is because sometimes these unions do have deals. Uh, and, and there has been reporting that, like, even RWDSU did not manage the situation, whether it was intentional or not, who knows, um, that they did not manage that, that union effort in Bessemer well or pick the right location to start this effort um, to work with, you know, someone, you know, group that was organizing. They were obviously organizing in Alabama already. So keep that in mind because, you know, you just mentioned that, the Teamsters wants to work with Amazon. There is a lot of conversation about like how you do this now, and do you trust uh, the bosses in leading the efforts because they're making a lot of these decisions? And if they're not rank and file, I mean, the, all of these things have make a big difference. So, um, Rose, I mean, b- before we listen to the clip, we, going back to that original question, like, is this going to affect the union effort? If you're, you're you're fighting multiple fights, you know, elections, fighting your bosses, uh, inter- your actual bosses, your union bosses. Yeah, I mean, I think th- that sort of also kind of goes to the whole Teamster topic where, you know, you, you need some new blood after a while. You need some reformist energy because otherwise you're not going to, I mean, it's just like the same with everything. You're going to need to change it up. You're going to have to have someone who's actually, you know, working, has worked recently in a, in a place like, I guess, what's the reformist, what he works for UPS, I guess, like a lot of, um, like a lot of the Teamsters union members, but, um, you know, it's good to have that, that, uh, that kind of change in perspective to re-strategize, to think about how you can best reach and convince people, um, to join your union. I mean, I, I read one of the complaints in Bessemer was that the union wasn't, um, wasn't very responsive. It wasn't nearly as responsive to prospective, uh, you know, union members um, as as Amazon was. And you know, when you're trying to go up against a, a company that's doing, you know, it's making its its employees sit down with them and giving them all this propaganda, you have to really be um, on your feet and thinking strategically and having new, uh, you know, new ways to to combat these anti union union busting efforts. So uh, I think I think that does sort of I'm not sure if this is really getting to your question, but it, it definitely it goes to it does. It, it's important to to sort of re-strategize with all these new kind of companies. And I think that um, I think that that's it, it's good to have that sort of revitalizing en- energy for sure. And in the case of Chris Smalls, I mean, they're doing an independent union effort like they're forming their own union. Right. So there's it's, it's, it's a really interesting and, and tough, yeah. obviously, challenge. But there's more independence from that. Um so their vice reports uh, the that that Amazon workers were in an anti-union meeting at a, a fulfillment center in Staten Island, uh, New York, and there was some <laughs> the audio was leaked. Um, this is at the excuse me. This was at the New York City's fulfillment, the JKF JFK eight, uh, I guess is the, the place it was. Held at. So the managers were reciting standard like anti-union talking points, and workers called them out on this misinformation, which is pretty incredible because you know it seems like their tricks aren't working as much anymore. People are calling it out. So let's just play like the first you know minute or so um, 
to get a sense and people can check out the, the 15 minute uh, clip on Vice. To walk through um, some of these different bullet points is we are one team at JFK. The ways we directly work together with you, like we truly value that direct working relationship. Um, who is the ALU? We've had many questions about what that group is an organization. So we'll cover that briefly. What the ALU is asking you to sign as far as some of those different um, like, like authorization cards and things. And then our commitment to you as, as the employer. And then at the end, we're going to get through this um, presentation. Then we're going to open it up to everybody as far as questions, comments, and things that you have. So, all right, so let's dive in. Can you see them? Yeah. We have an amazing team, and we believe working directly together is the best way to improve the workplace and respond to your feedback. Working directly together allows us to focus on our one team approach because it makes improvement happen quickly. Providing the programs and opportunities you care about most. Open door avenues that give you direct access to management and HR. Yeah, to dive in a little deeper on that. Obviously, when we talk about providing programs and opportunities, a lot of those are maybe things that you haven't heard of or may not be as close to you on your day-to-day, -day, right? Um, so who here has heard of the Career Choice Program? A couple, right? So you have a lot of benefits right now. I'm just going to dive in a little bit to that one because we're constantly looking at ways to improve those type of programs. For instance, Career Choice today, you have to be employed with Amazon for a year, and then it would pay roughly about 80% of that tuition. Come January, that benefit is getting better. It's going to go down to only being here 90 days before you can take advantage of that, and it's going to pay 100% of that tuition. And that's for programs that could be that help you stay here with Amazon or something that's just needed in the community. I've seen okay. things like from CD. So. This actually reminds me a lot of the tactics that Starbucks used, you know? It's almost like they put in these perks, and and some of them, you know, later on in the conversation, they get more into the actual propaganda of, of, of anti-union. But the perks are part of, you know, perks that they can afford. You know, sometimes they do these partnerships with other companies and, and educational institutions that are for-profit, like ASU. Uh, to, to keep their workers from unionizing. It's, 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 it's really kind of an incredible, like, corporate strategy. But folks are starting to wise up. Obviously, there's been a lot of effort in, in New York um, on the Amazon front. But uh, what, like, <laughs> what kind of propaganda have you guys heard? I mean, how, how effective do you think this is going to be, or are these leaks making a difference? Rose, let's, let's start with you. I, I mean, I think that it's, it's just interesting to have these leaks and to have the constant coverage because it, it ties together all the messaging that's basically the same across the board and every sort of union busting effort. It's always the same sort of, you know, here are the perks that you get and they're, you know, they're a little bit hard to redeem, but you can, if you want, redeem them. Or, uh, you know, we don't want a middleman. There's always going to be a middleman, but the union's going to put a middleman between the workers and, and um, the administration. And we want to hear directly from you about the problems that you're having, even though we've never listened to those in the past. Um, and so I think that the, the nice, the thing about it, at least the reporting and the leaks is that it does, it does tie together all these different union messages that really just shed light on how, on how, uh, uniform this, this approach is, the strategy is. Uh, and I think there's a good part of that clip where, um, 
the one of the one of the Amazon workers asks the representative asks the three representatives where they're from. Um, and they all say that they're from, oh, I'm from outside, like outside Chicago. I'm yeah. from, none of them are from even New York state. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's almost a little bit lazy. It seems like they didn't even try to kind of make these people seem like they're New York Amazon workers that are kind of coming from the same place. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely good. I, I think every leak is, is, uh, moving in the right direction at least. And that's interesting you say that because like so much of this type of work is based off of relationships. So relational organizing can be used against people as well. And, uh, you know, there are, there are all these like firms that do this kind of work. They do the press, they, they do the communications, they do the actual tactical work of busting unions. Um, in some cases, they've done this type of anti-insurgent work overseas, uh, in, in war zones, um, Bad tactic, not having someone come in uh, from the community. No, Jordan? What other stuff uh, are you yeah. saying? <laughs> you know, in, in Buffalo, I was going to say back in Buffalo, they've had so many people coming from California, from Florida, from all these places that have no idea about Buffalo with Starbucks. Like, they're like, hey, partners, I'm actually an executive who lives in Stockton, California, but, or, you know, uh, lives in Sacramento, California, but uh, you're, we're partners now. Um, <laughs> and and the, some of the stuff they, they offer, you mentioned, the guy mentioned, oh, now the, the, the college tuition thing, the credits for that, it's going to be not a year, three months. Like Amazon loses 3% of the warehouse, loses 3% of its workforce every single week. There's turnover. Uh, in Amazon, it's, I think it's, uh, the, in like within uh, one year, it was 150% of the workforce turned over. Like these are not credits, especially after it's been a year, but even three months, so we don't make it that long. And mm-hmm. so like, great. they make them pee in bottles. Yeah. And you know, so these people aren't going to like actually get any of the benefits that are offered. Um, Number one, number two, like they bring in and fix, they fit, they promise these things when there's a union, when there's a union campaign. It's not like these things are normal benefits for them, and you can't even do that. That ends. So it's called uh, violating laboratory conditions. And so you know all these, you know all these folks, they they offer these things that aren't really going to happen. And if they do, it's only for a select number of people. Right. And it happens over and over and over again. And they keep filling up. I mean, in, in uh, Staten Island, they brought in so many new people at Chris yeah. Smalls. You know his his number of. Petitions they right. they got weren't enough. It wasn't thirty percent anymore, even though they right. were told that they needed about two thousand. Um, and so that's how they. I mean, there's all these ways that they bust these unions. And I want to say, like, going back to the point about reforming, uh, and, and Chris Smalls being upset about the, you know there need to be reformed and new unions. The one thing I'll say is unions have been up against it for a really long time. And so just to like mm-hmm. maintain, you know, like their membership keeps bleeding off. It keeps it keeps yeah. sending jobs overseas. It happened with Nabisco. It happened with Free to Lay. It's happening everywhere. And so there's some degree is like the fact that they've maintained anything is impressive. You know, um, it's one of those things where they've held the line and, you know, things have been pulled away from them. And a lot of times they've given up a little too easily. But, uh, you know, it's it's props to them for surviving, I guess. And, yeah. uh, and maybe now it's time for like a new generation to take over now that there's a new energy. You know, it's, it's uh, not easy to be a union person for the last 30, 40 years. That's for sure. Yep. So I want to shift um, just just before we end uh, on a really bright note. Pat Smart. Not right now at all. Um, I, I I know Jordan. This is a, a piece that you guys worked on. Uh, my mom recently called me because we have a, a, a poodle and um, a Bichon poodle. It was mine, and my mom stole him from me. So if you wonder why I say we, it's she literally stole the dog from me. Uh, he's 15 years old. He has been groomed many times. If you know anything about poodles, they have to be groomed all the time. She took Bijou to a PetSmart. And they um, yelled at her and said that we can't groom <laughs> this dog. He is too rambunctious and he's mean and he bit us. 
this dog has never bitten anybody or anything, and he's been groomed his whole life. And my mom, like, went on the warpath. Like, she's like, he does not do like, I'm like, mom, you're being a little Karen. Stop it. She's like, no, it's Bisha. But what what she realized was there had been a lot of turnover at PetSmart. So there's there's a deeper story to this insanity is that they weren't hiring experienced groomers. And this story, uh, we're going to play a little – all these things are really long and we're, we're posting them up in the uh, summary for people to see the full clip. But let's play a little bit of this and then, Jordan, you can give us a little bit more information and we'll discuss – a lot of sickness, a lot of injuries, a lot of death at PetSmart with their animals. You know, you turn around, you tell PetSmart, hey, we had, you know, these 15 animals die. Oh my God. And half the time they turn around and go, okay, well, here's 15 more. They say safety is a priority, but it's, it's sales are always a priority. I do anything for you. Anything for pets. That's the motto for PetSmart the nation's biggest pet store chain, which markets itself as a one-stop shop for pet parenting. But PetSmart workers are speaking out about rampant animal deaths and unsafe conditions for workers. They say the issues all started when private equity firm BC Partners bought PetSmart in 2015. Since then, dog deaths at PetSmart have more than doubled and working conditions have plummeted. I worked at PetSmart for almost five years and I worked as a dog trainer for them. When I started it was just a real family feel. When the private equity firm BC Partners took over PetSmart, people started disappearing, jobs started disappearing, and the workload was spread out onto fewer people. BC Partners followed a familiar pattern that private equity has used in all types of industries, from housing to nursing homes to local news. Buy PetSmart, slash jobs, and cut corners at every turn while maximizing profits. BC Partners is a private equity, kind of Wall Street entity kind of thing. They see these companies as like chips on a gambling table. The only thing that makes that different is that anything they bet, they don't lose. If the company does well, great, they profit. If the company goes under, they're fine. BC Partners doesn't care to take into account individual stores. They just see the big picture, and most of the time that's just sales. But what happens when private equity invades an industry where the lives of animals are at stake? Simply put, animals die. It may okay. happen with their beauties. So it's interesting. We start off the show doing an interview with how um, a lot of oligarchs and, and plutocrats are hiding their money in firms like this. So it's just really crazy to see the, the connection between everything. Um, Jordan, how did you find out about this? Like how... Did, uh, I mean, it's all out there in the open, but like. Right. So I got I to get credit. My, my coworker, uh, fellow producer, Livy uh, Rain, who did the voiceover on that, she, she reported this whole story. And I think there had been a, a report that came out from like a minor like animal rights organization that like hinted at some of the problems with the, uh, with the you know, animals dying and you know, the, the doubling of the number of the last bunch of years and just kind of started digging in. I mean, you know, I think she's a pet owner, although maybe I'm, I'm getting that wrong. But, you know, I think it's, there's just so many pet smarts. And, you know, there's been talk here and there of it. And, you know, there'd been, I think it's the private equity thing, seeing how much money they've made on this thing and how many other places they own. And I think like, you know, there's a million problems that we have in this country, but private equity might be responsible for like 900,000 of them. Yeah. Um, and That's, so, I mean, Brad, our producer said, it seems like it's the playbook applied to everything. Yep. So if you take on private equity, does that, does, if we regulate their actions, does that make a difference? I mean, if we could, if we can, I mean, it's, I mean, they, like you said, own half the seats of the DNC board. Um, 
And so, you know, I mean, the, people say that there's, you know, there's a time and the place. And there was a recent editorial in, Sun, in the Chicago Sun-Times saying, you know, they can be useful giving, you know, uh, getting cash infusions to small businesses and whatnot. But that's not what they actually do anymore. Isn't that cover? Right? That's just cover. That's like great. I cool. mean, it's like great theoretically, washing. they could. They invest, you know, theoretically. But the, the Sun-Times was saying, you know, they need to be reined in in a big way. And the amount of things they hold, the amount of things that they slash, the amount of things they cut, you know, for profit. I was talking to someone over the weekend who worked at a, a media organization that was just ripped to shreds by private equity. I mean, they're selling it the printers, you know? Um, and the printers? I mean, what was amazing is, I mean, they do it other places. It wasn't this one, but they had, they had before. Um, what was amazing is like Mitt Romney ran in 2012 a president for president and like it was a private equity villain and that's how he was yeah. portrayed and it worked. Now like Glenn Youngkin goes win, go, he's a, a Carlisle group guy. He goes and wins for, uh, in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe had investments with his group, Carlisle group. I mean, there is so they have their hand in both yep. parties' pockets, and uh, you know, so like, yeah, it would be great to rein them in because you know the amount of things you can buy, the how long you get to hold on to it, how much you can invest in it, how much you can cut. Uh, I mean, they, they've destroyed factories left and right across the country. Uh, yeah, that would be, be gigantic and huge. It's it's a it's a giant problem that needs to be tackled by a huge reform movement. I mean, Rose, like. I just don't see this sustainable. I mean, these are investors and, and it just seems they're so short-sighted that they don't understand there's not going to be any more workforce or companies or, cons- I mean, this is a consumer economy. This is basic economics. If you can't provide for your workers, if you can't make the workplace sustainable, you know, there are only so many investors in this country, like, and they're going to lose their money too. I mean, that's how the economy works. I just don't understand. Is, is this, is everybody just blind to the fact that like this can't last more than a few years? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. And also the fact that they're in, you know, apart from PetSmart, which is important to, to a lot of animals, like my little dog right here. But, oh, <laughs> but they're in a lot of other, you know, life and death industries, like the way that they've scooped up uh, emergency room care and they just, you right. know, control so many, they just staff and run emergency departments, most emergency departments, I'm pretty sure, across the country. Um, you know, that's how is that sustainable? Also, that's interesting because that's an industry that it has struggles to make money at all. So it's an interesting choice for them to have to have gone into that. And real estate, you know, they're they're in these industries that have a huge, you know, daily importance to everyday people. Um, and so it's it's yeah, it, it's interesting to see how it goes. But I do think, yeah, it's going to need a ton of public pressure and just a lot of, you know, the way that people have pressured other, you know, other big companies, whether how to use their money and, and the way that there is sort of, sort of campaigns already to, to put sort of a sh- shame on them for, for, um, yeah. for doing the things they do and for slashing all these jobs. I mean, it is the playbook that they use that's really consistent. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine though without, I mean, this doesn't seem like it's yet a topic that is kind of central and widely known um, in the media conversation. I, I would doubt that most Americans know the kind of power that private equ- equity yields. So I think that there's a lot of work to do there in terms of, uh, you know, painting painting the picture of what's going on and, and making people aware of that. It's almost like they bought up a bunch of media companies and make sure that this it's information doesn't like, get out yeah, there. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure we're all veterans of many media companies. I I, I make the joke that I have more staff on this tiny little show than I did when I hosted a nightly show on Sirius XM, a publicly traded company uh, that was three hours a day. And I have more support from this show than that. And I think it comes back to this. I mean, we've all been in media rooms. We're like, why don't we have X, Y, Z? Why aren't you doing this? Like it's, it's, and then of course they, they rip investigative reporting to shreds and state house reporting to shreds and 
all reporting to shreds. And yeah, if, if you don't, if you don't have people to report, then maybe they won't get uh, caught doing things. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's what's remarkable is one thing I've noticed, and I've been reading up on a lot is if you think about Andrew Cuomo, right? Like uh, the sheer number of nursing home owners yeah. and private equity companies that gave to him, and he gave them immunity. Uh, those are also places that are getting money from Medicaid, from states and the federal government. And so if you really want to like turn the screws on them, a lot of these places, all these equity firms rely on public subsidies, whether or not it's actually called public subsidy. And so I think one thing the government can do is, you know, create higher standards, you know, at the very least, maybe like, I mean, look, government's not going to do anything, but, you know, maybe you could disguise it as, hey, we're protecting seniors by creating higher standards for nursing homes. We're protecting better standards for, you know, like uh, patients by requiring higher standards for emergency rooms, that sort of thing where, you know, at least scare them off yeah. uh, from having, you know, because if they're told, an employer is told, oh, we, you have to invest in something. You know, it's like when Amazon got afraid to invest in uh, California or in San Diego because they had to have a higher minimum wage. Right. Uh, they just ran away. So maybe, you know, like creating some regulation, God willing, God forbid, I mean, uh, might, might scare these people off even if it doesn't make them sell anything right away. Yeah, and you can't send some of these jobs to uh, other countries like they they do when they want to run away from decent wages. Yeah. I all right, Rose, Jordan, such a. We should have ended on a brighter note, I guess. Save our grandmas. Start, we should have and started our, with the pets and the grandmas, and then ended with the 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 Starbucks. So maybe in editing, we can. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I think it's not too much work. Because, you know, we're a tiny little media company, tiny little baby media company. All right, Jordan, thank you for joining us. Rose, thank you for joining us. Hope to have you on soon. And Rose's dog, where's Rose's dog? She's right here, Luna. Oh, my, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Luna. Oh, yeah, my God. I'm very good this whole time. <laughs> Luna, look at the camera. What's wrong with Luna, you? Luna, come on. Action's right here. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining, everybody. Thank you. Right. Hope to talk to you again soon. All right, folks, we will see you back on Friday for Femme Friday, as always. And most importantly right now, stay in solidarity because that's a big part of organizing, as we know. Stay in solidarity. Thanks. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Meeky Show. Continues.